0: Greetings, everybody. This episode is going to consist of my segment from History on Fire, episode 67, wherein the great Daniele Bellelli brought together myself and a bunch of other excellent history podcasters to each contribute a short segment on the theme of ripples of history. How seemingly minor occurrences can sometimes have echoes that go on down through and impact later events and historical trends my segment was on Bacon's Rebellion in Colonial Virginia and its legacy for future American history. Also featured in that episode of History on Fire are Alex von Sternberg of History Impossible, Sebastian Major of Our Fake History, Sam Davis of Inward Empire, and Daryl Cooper of Martyr Made. And I just want to yet again thank Daniele for giving us all the opportunity to put a segment on his excellent podcast, And I want to recommend you check out History on Fire if you're not already a listener to it. It's on my short list always of top history podcasts. History on Fire is part of the Luminary Podcast Network, so some of the episodes are on a public feed, but some of them are part of Luminary's subscription podcast network. And you can check this out and sign up for a seven-day free trial. There's lots of other shows there too, not just History on Fire at luminarypodcasts.com. So please enjoy my relatively concise version of Bacon's Rebellion and its legacy. Bacon's Rebellion, which took place in colonial Virginia in the 1670s, was the largest rebellion against established authority in colonial British North America prior to the American Revolution. And yet it's little known today. But despite that, its effects have been profound and reverberate through time all the way to our own era, nearly 350 years later influencing race and class relations and conflict in the U.S., and the methods that the elites use to manipulate, orchestrate, shape, exploit, and leverage those tensions and conflicts for their own benefit. To tell the story of Bacon's Rebellion, we have to give a quick sketch of colonial Virginia's origins. The colony began in 1607 with the founding of Jamestown. The colonists initially hoped to find gold, but instead they found mostly misery and death, due to a combination of disease, famine, and and off-and-on conflict with the Indians in the area. The death rate among the first couple of generations of colonists in Virginia was astonishingly high. In 1607, they found a way that would make at least some of them very rich, growing tobacco. Tobacco thrived in Virginia, and as Europeans got addicted to it, it became Virginia's staple crop, dominating its economy. Some Virginians, those who got there early, and who had the money and political connections to get title to big pieces of land, and who didn't die, of course, families with names like Bird, Carter, Lee, and Randolph, to name just a few. Ended up becoming the colony's first plantation owners or planters, its first homegrown aristocrats, and in conjunction with the colony's royally appointed governor, they dominated the colonial government. The earliest known instance of African slaves being imported into Virginia was in 1619, but for much of the 17th century, numbers of slaves remained pretty modest in the colony, and the majority of the laborers on plantations were actually white indentured servants. These were poor people from the British Isles, mostly men, who had no prospects at home and so were willing to take a desperate chance on moving to Virginia despite the dangers. But these were people who were so poor they couldn't even afford a boat ticket across the Atlantic. So they'd contract with a wealthy guy who already owned land in Virginia. The wealthy guy would cover their boat ticket across the ocean, and then once they arrived, they would work for the rich guy for a set term of years, most commonly between five and seven. The indentured servant would not be paid, though their master was supposed to provide them with the basics of food and shelter and so on. Once the person worked off the number of years on their indenture, they were to be set free And usually, by the terms of their contract, their master was also supposed to provide them with a little something to get started on their own, often including a little piece of land. Now, if this sounds kind of like temporary slavery, you're getting the picture. In theory, indentured servants were supposed to have a little bit more rights than slaves, including the obvious one that their condition was supposed to be temporary and didn't pass on to their descendants. But in practice, indentured servants faced hard labor in tough conditions, and often face tough physical discipline for any infractions. So the daily life of an indentured servant at this time wasn't much different from a slave's day to day. And while they were supposed to be freed and provided with land at the end of their term, in the first few generations of settlement in Virginia, usually around half of all indentured servants would die, mostly from various diseases, before they ever worked off their indenture. But by the time you get into the mid to late 17th century, conditions were improving at least enough in Virginia that more and more servants were actually living long enough to work off their indenture. But since most of the good land anywhere near the coast was already long since spoken for, many of the indentured servants worked off their indenture and either got no land, or they got marginal lands in dangerous areas near the Indian frontier. Now, Virginia's governor for much of the mid-17th century was a man named Sir William Berkeley, who was in his early 70s when Bacon's Rebellion broke out, and he'd been governor for 27 years by that point. Berkeley was pretty popular for about the first half of his time as governor, but became increasingly controversial in the lead-up to Bacon's Rebellion. Early in his tenure as governor in the 1640s, Berkeley was an aggressive expansionist who defeated Indians west of the Blue Ridge, and thereby opened up new lands to white settlement. But he also made a deal with the defeated tribes, that they would essentially be tributaries to the Virginia colony, in return for which Virginians wouldn't encroach any further onto their lands. This deal, Like most other deals of this sort throughout the colonial period and after the establishment of the independent U.S., didn't really hold for very long, because the colonists who actually lived out on the frontier wanted those lands, and they tended to stir up conflict with the Indians and encroach into their territory regardless of what the distant colonial government proclaimed. But the fact that Berkeley was even trying to stick to the agreement with the tributary tribes was enough to anger many white Virginians, both rich and poor, who lived in the frontier areas. Major population growth in Virginia in the mid-17th century just added more pressure on the natives. Virginia's colonial population increased 400% from 8,000 to 40,000 between 1640 and 1660. Good land in the East simply wasn't available to either freed servants or wealthy newcomers. So those people pushed West, and they weren't interested in respecting Indian territories at all. And Berkeley's efforts to try and protect tributary Indian territories simply angered them. Over the course of Berkeley's time as governor, tobacco prices were generally declining, but taxes and other form of government exploitation and extraction were increasing. The government's fiscal policy became very regressive, with smaller planters and farmers, and those out near the frontier, paying a disproportionate share of the taxes and fees, while a disproportionate amount of the benefit went into the hands of the colony's power elite, who were mostly the biggest planters in the East who dominated the government. In the years leading up to Bacon's rebellion, Berkeley became more autocratic as governor. The Virginia legislature lost power to him while also becoming more elitist, disproportionately representing the wealthy Easterners even more than it already had. All of this came, as we said before, at a time when Virginia's white population was rapidly increasing, and so there were increasing numbers of frustrated men who felt disenfranchised, and unfairly screwed out of opportunities by the system, either because they were poor, because they were newcomers to the colony, and therefore, even if they were rich, they simply weren't part of the old boys' club, or because they lived closer to the frontier areas in the West, or some combination of two or more of these characteristics. So you've got to understand that Virginia, in the mid to late 17th century, was a complicated tinderbox of class tensions. Made even more volatile for Berkeley and his cronies by the fact that in Virginia, even the poorest free whites were likely to be well-armed. Berkeley himself wrote at the time, quote, how miserable that man is, that governs a people where six parts of seven at least are poor, indebted, discontented, and armed, End quote. Or as historian Edmund Morgan described the situation, quote, Men with guns are not as easily exploited as men without them, end quote. All that was needed to ignite violent class conflict was an immediate spark and a charismatic leader to fan the flames. Nathaniel Bacon was, in most ways, a very unlikely rebel. He was an aristocrat, born to a wealthy family in England in the 1640s, and he even got a Cambridge education. But he was always a bit of a problem child and got into some trouble in England. So in 1673, when he was only in his mid-twenties, his father gave him a pretty hefty sum of money and sent him across the ocean to Virginia. Bacon initially seems to have just wanted to get himself kind of into the old boys' club in Virginia, even though in some ways he looked down on them, because as a rich, educated Englishman, he looked at the colonial elites with contempt, which no doubt made it even more painful when they, in his eyes, snubbed him. Bacon also had some family connections to Governor Berkeley, too, which no doubt only increased his sense of entitlement, and made it harder for him to deal with not always getting his way. The main thing Bacon seems to have wanted politically, once he bought land in western Virginia and began to get involved in the colony's affairs, was for Virginia to go back to being much more aggressive against the Indians. All Indians. Friendly or not. Bacon did not set out to democratize Virginia. He didn't set out to stir up the poor, landless whites against the gentry. And he certainly did not intend to get the colonies, population of indentured servants, and even slaves to become politically mobilized. But, intended or not, his actions at least raised the specter of those things happening, which terrified Berkeley and the Old Boys Club. The actual back and forth between Bacon and Berkeley and their respective supporters that constitutes the story of Bacon's Rebellion, is a pretty intricate soap opera that unfolded over the course of nearly two years, but I'll do my best to give you the short version without losing any of the vital details. In March of 1675, Governor Berkeley appointed Bacon to his council. But from pretty early on, Bacon's ambition and arrogance and sense of entitlement seem to have really rubbed Berkeley the wrong way. And Bacon, for his part, was offended that even though he was on the council, he still wasn't really part of the real inner circle around Berkeley. In July of 1675, out on the frontier, a dispute between a planter named Thomas Matthew and some Doeg Indians escalated to the point where there were a few killings back and forth, followed by Matthew leading a retaliatory force that not only killed a bunch of Doegs, but also a group of friendly Susquehannock Indians who'd had nothing to do with any of this. After this, the Indians in the area began launching much more aggressive raids that killed a bunch more white settlers. Governor Berkeley and his allies wanted to adopt a restrained response centered around trying to maintain positive relations with the friendly Indians while adopting a defensive strategy against the hostile ones that would be focused on building additional forts along the frontier. Now, let me just point out here that Berkeley and his cronies were not being restrained toward the natives, primarily out of some sort of humanitarianism. After all, these same guys had had no problem conquering Indians in the past, and they had no qualms about exploiting slaves and indentured servants on their own plantations. What they were really concerned about was protecting their own interests by putting limits on access to land by newcomers and freedmen. In other words, by keeping land relatively scarce, established planters would be preventing new competitors—either former indentured servants or wealthy newcomers like Bacon—from being able to start new farms and plantations and then growing ever greater amounts of tobacco—which, of course, was the driving force behind the falling tobacco prices of the time. Without new lands to move into— Newcomers and freedmen would either have to rent land from an established planter, or go to work for an established planter as an employee, or leave Virginia. Nathaniel Bacon and other planters from the more frontier areas wanted to be much more aggressive and proactive against the Indians. Now, Bacon had wanted to be aggressive against the natives since he arrived in Virginia, but by this time, he'd actually had one of his overseers on a plantation of his killed by Indians. And now he began demanding that Berkeley grant him a military commission to take command of a militia force and go after all the Indians in the region. Berkeley was starting to get really annoyed at what he saw as Bacon's insolence and even insubordination in making these demands, and he would not grant Bacon that commission. Bacon decided to lead his followers that he had begun attracting, who were a volunteer militia force of men from the frontier counties, against the Indians anyway, and they carried out several attacks and massacres. First, Bacon recruited the friendly okanichi to help him attack the Susquehannock, and then after that was done, Bacon turned on the Okaneechee and massacred them too. In May of 1676, Governor Berkeley kicked Nathaniel Bacon out of his council and officially labeled Bacon as a rebel for his unauthorized war against the Indians. Berkeley also called for new elections to the legislature, and Nathaniel Bacon, though technically now an outlaw, won a seat. In June of 1676, the new House of Burgesses met in Jamestown. Nathaniel Bacon attended, accompanied by a group of armed militiamen. But Bacon was arrested when he tried to take his seat. He then apologized to Berkeley on bended knee, and Berkeley pardoned him and even readmitted him to the council. But not long after this, with Bacon and some of his supporters in the legislature still demanding that he get a military commission to go fight the Indians, Berkeley changed his mind about the pardon and again removed Bacon from the council and declared him to be a rebel and an outlaw. On July 30th, 1676, Bacon and his supporters issued a manifesto called the Declaration of the People of Virginia. In it, they expressed grievances against Berkeley's government, mostly centered on its unfair taxation and cronyism on the one hand, and its refusal to follow the wishes of the people of Virginia in making aggressive war against the Indians on the other. The Declaration also argued that, in conducting himself in this way as governor, Berkeley was actually harming the interests of the King of England— And so Bacon's manifesto was basically claiming that in rebelling against their governor, they were not rebelling against their king. In fact, they were standing up for his interests. By this time, as Bacon began to attract more and more followers, he started to get pledges of support from more of Virginia's big planters. And his forces began going after the planters, who were still refusing to support him and who were staying loyal to Berkeley. Presumably, based on how things eventually played out, a lot of the eastern planters who pledged support to Bacon at this time were just seeing which way the winds were blowing and really acting just out of fear and self-interest. Though Bacon himself was a wealthy planter, and many of his top sidekicks in this rebellion were too, the bulk of the rank-and-file foot soldiers of his rebellion were actually poor, landless, former indentured servants. And there were even some whites who were still indentured, as well as even some slaves involved in various ways in the rebellion, too. So even though Bacon doesn't seem to have started out trying to launch some sort of class-based leveling revolution, that's what his movement, at least in part, had evolved into. In September of 1676, Bacon's forces were closing in on Jamestown. Berkeley realized he did not have enough armed manpower to fend them off, and so he fled across the Chesapeake Bay to Virginia's eastern shore. Bacon's forces entered Jamestown the very next day and burned it. Bacon then went west again and went on another rampage against the Indians before coming back to Jamestown. And at this point, it really looked like his rebellion might actually succeed in overthrowing the colonial government of Virginia. In October, over in England, King Charles II signed a proclamation to put down the rebellion by force. Ironically, right around the time he was doing this, Nathaniel Bacon was dying of some sort of illness, most likely dysentery. He died at the age of just 29. And after Bacon died, the rebellion quickly began to fall apart, and most of the biggest planters who had backed him quickly switched back to supporting Berkeley. Berkeley, meanwhile, returned to Jamestown in early 1677 with about a thousand British army regulars, and further backed up by some Royal Navy ships, plenty of force to put down what remained of Bacon's rebellion. Once Berkeley had re-established control of the colony, most of the big planters that had backed Bacon quickly switched back to Berkeley, if they had not already done so. Some of Bacon's supporters had property confiscated but in the end, only 23 men were executed for their role in the rebellion. King Charles removed Berkeley from the governorship in 1677. Berkeley returned to England and died soon after, less than a year after Nathaniel Bacon had died. In the aftermath of Bacon's rebellion, the Virginia government reduced some of the most onerous and unpopular taxes that squeezed the middle and lower classes the most, and made the colony's government a little bit more representative of the overall free white male population. Now, don't get me wrong, the wealthiest planters still continued to basically run things in practice for the most part, but poorer whites at least felt themselves to be less disenfranchised than before. Virginia, of course, also went back to a much more aggressive policy across the board toward Indians and their land. This, of course, helped reunify different classes of whites against a common outside enemy. And it also meant that there would continue to be cheap land available as the frontier pushed ever further west, which would provide some opportunity for upward class mobility for poorer whites and would therefore act as a social safety valve. But perhaps the most important long-term legacy of Bacon's rebellion is that it sped up the conversion from white indentured servants over to black slaves as the preferred source of labor on the plantations. Now, this transition didn't happen overnight. It wasn't anything that anyone agreed upon as like a deliberate, explicit plan beforehand, but the records show it clearly happening in the decades following Bacon's rebellion. Each year, fewer indentured servants were being brought in, and more African slaves were being brought in instead, as more and more individual planters every year concluded that slaves would be a better labor source to solve their problems, with fewer dangerous potential side effects as compared to indentured servants. Now, Bacon's Rebellion wasn't the only reason that Virginia planters increasingly shifted from white indentured servants to black slaves, and in fact the trend had begun even before the rebellion amongst the wealthier planters. But in the aftermath of the rebellion, we can see the trend gradually start to accelerate. And it got a big boost in the 1690s, when the British Royal West Africa Company's monopoly on the Atlantic slave trade was ended. And so there started to be competition amongst different firms for shipping slaves across the ocean. And as a result of this, the price of slaves went down and their availability went up in the New World. These and other factors made slaves a much better economic investment after Bacon's Rebellion than before. And it's quite possible, and perhaps even likely, that this switch would have occurred even without Bacon's Rebellion. But certainly Bacon's Rebellion seems to have sped it up and added additional reasons for the switch beyond simply economic ones. Slaves would ultimately provide a much more exploitable underclass, permanently kept from things like land ownership and political participation. And Virginia's elites didn't just start bringing in more slaves, they also began changing laws and customs over the course of several decades following Bacon's Rebellion, to physically and psychologically separate poor whites, including indentured servants, from blacks. The elites had definitely noticed, even before Bacon's Rebellion, that indentured servants and slaves often seemed to have gotten along pretty well, and often would see themselves as being in the same boat, exploited by the same master class. And sometimes they'd even work together to run away or to rebel. The fact that laws began being passed to severely punish blacks and whites who teamed up like this shows that, A, that sort of stuff was happening. And B, the elites were scared of it and really wanted it to stop. Another advantage of exploiting slaves instead of poor whites was that slaves could be permanently barred from legal access to firearms. No doubt some of the smarter guys among Virginia's elites realized that slave rebellions would now be a real possibility with there being greater numbers of slaves in the colony. But they must have calculated that those would be easier to put down than would-be rebellions of poor free men, especially if those poor free men ever made common cause with slaves. Switching over to more race-based slavery would enable Virginia's elites to keep the poor whites on their side as allies against the slaves, and even the non-slave-owning poor whites of Virginia, for example, would end up ultimately happily and willingly participating in things like slave patrols, which were basically militia units formed to police the slaves. The continuous expansion into new lands on the frontier, combined with the increasing switch over to slave labor, created a greater degree of social class mobility among white Virginians. Because land ownership became relatively widespread among them, and land ownership was of course a prerequisite for political participation. Put simply, the growth of black slavery in colonial Virginia allowed whites of all social classes to feel more unified with each other, and to continue to do so even after the outside enemy, that being the Indians, were largely eliminated as a real factor in Virginia. And exploiting the slaves meant that Virginia's elites didn't have to exploit the poor whites as badly as they had before Bacon's rebellion. And this all worked rather effectively. The class conflict between elite and non-elite whites in Virginia never 100% disappeared, but it dramatically decreased over the course of the 18th century, and it never again even remotely came close to reaching the levels it had before and during Bacon's Rebellion. So the strategy of leveraging both conflict with an external enemy, the Indians, on the one hand, and with an exploitable but potentially dangerous internal quote-unquote other, that being the slaves, on the other hand, was largely successful in getting lower and middle-class whites to buy in to the existing system, and thereby keep the plutocrats in their position of power, privilege, and opulence. And this strategy didn't just stay within only the colony and later the state of Virginia. It influenced neighboring colonies and states which followed Virginia's lead, and because Virginia was the oldest and most prestigious British North American colony, and at the time of independence was the largest and most important of the original states, and because so many of the most important and influential men of the first generation of national leaders in the U.S. were Virginians, all of this influenced the entire country. The lessons of Bacon's Rebellion And its aftermath seem to have been internalized in America's elites down to this day. Even if in our time it's largely only implicitly and instinctively in terms of habit rather than deliberate conscious strategy. Even if most of today's elites know little or nothing about Bacon's rebellion. As I'm recording this in early June of 2020, an interesting thing to think about is this. Does the modern day American power elite, regardless of their particular party or ideological persuasion, do they all still use versions of this same basic playbook? Do they still leverage a combination of supposed outside external enemies on the one hand and internal racial differences on the other in order to keep themselves in their place at the top of the social pyramid? In other words, do they still prefer to stoke racial conflicts of various sorts internally and externally in order to keep a lid on class conflicts, which they see as the real threat to their system? I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, There are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, And you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.